When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Okay, so today I have a friend of mine, Tanya Gibbs, that I'm going to be talking to about a really interesting project that she's engaged in, and she has very kindly offered to donate some of her time to come on and discuss some of this. And I'd like to start, Tanya, with getting to know you a little bit. So tell me some something about your background, about what it was like to be you growing up, where you grew up, your family situation. What was your context? Well, I grew up in a Midwestern suburb outside of Chicago. I was raised in a fairly affluent suburb, but we were on sort of the poor side of that suburb. My mother was originally from Louisiana. My dad was born and raised in the suburb that we grew up in. And they met when she was living with her mother. Her mother had moved up from Louisiana. So that's sort of the background of how I came to be. (laughs) My mother had been traveling and she wanted to be a model, but she also had pretty strong political concerns being a Black woman growing up in the 50s and 60s. She was born in 1943. So she had those in the back of her mind, but she also had a very creative side. When she met my father, (laughs) as an adult, she told us this, but she, even in the beginning, she wasn't really sure (laughs) if she wanted to be with him. But they ended up together anyway for, what, 16 or 18 years. And I grew up one of six children. So this was at the very beginnings of the birth control pill coming out. But it was at such a powerful level that it did not do well with her. And so she didn't use it. Okay, so, so you're, you're saying just medically she, she didn't have a good like Correct. physical response to it. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it wasn't like a moral issue. Initially, we lived with my dad's parents, my paternal grandparents. They had a duplex and had a full apartment on the ground floor and a full apartment just above on the second floor. And we lived in the second floor. They saved up. And when I was four years old, we moved just down the block. They were able to buy a house. And my mom kept that house ever since. After the divorce, it was decided that she would stay in the house with us kids. The house is still there. My siblings, a couple of my siblings still live there, nieces and nephews. So it's it's a family house. My Again, my mom always had very powerful considerations when it came to 
what kind of world she wanted, especially for her children. She was always down at the school if she felt that any of her children were being mistreated or if they were um, had to experience extra challenges on top of what other children had to in the same school, she was she was down there. Have- and you're, you're talking here about like, you know, racial concerns. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. I grew up with four older brothers and one younger sister, and all four of my older brothers had issues with authorities at the school for various reasons. I was born in 1970, so my brothers were obviously a little older, and so it was during that time period where they liked to, I don't know, there's still some element of this, but there was this really entrenched structure to sort of push Black boys to either remedial or learning disabled classes or streams, and then eventually into interaction with the law. It seemed like even back, of course, back then it was worse, but that was just sort of the setup for it. That was the path that you were going to take. But my mom was insistent that that wasn't going to happen. And unfortunately, sometimes it did. But I remember also going with her to a protest I didn't know exactly what was going on at the time. I think I was like seven or eight and my sister was with me, I believe. And we were walking with people and they gave us a couple of signs. And I remember hearing one of the other adults. I remember because we were going to get something to eat after and I hadn't been to the place that we were going. So it sort of seared into my brain. (laughs) And the lady that was coming with us to eat with us was saying, that she was disappointed that other people didn't come. And they had mentioned that they couldn't come because they didn't have anybody to watch their kids. And she was like, I wish they were more like you and just bring the kids with them. It's interesting that you talk about the, the expectations and how those are used to shape futures of children. So I Mm -hmm. literally just watched uh, Michelle Obama, the documentary Becoming yesterday. And one of the issues that she discusses is how she went to a guidance counselor and expressed that she wanted to go to Princeton because her brother was going to Princeton. Mm -hmm. And the guidance counselor told Michelle Obama, you are not Princeton material. Oh, Um, And and that ultimately became part of her motivation to really go to Princeton, which she ended up doing. Absolutely. But those expectations, you're right. Obviously, she was Princeton material. Right. And that brings up something that all through my life I've been struggling with about how people justify letting all of this potential go to the wayside that could be pushing us forward as human beings. And yet it doesn't matter or it's colored by the fact that someone is different than us. I mean, in in any case whether it's race, whether it's uh, gender identity, whether it's sexual orientation. I've always just been baffled by that. Like, well, I mean, this is what marginalization is meant to accomplish, right? It, it mm-hmm. basically is, is a form of, or the, the method of disenfranchising groups. Absolutely. So you disenfranchise them, you remove them from the dominant structure, and then they become just superfluous. And like you're saying, it's mm-hmm. a waste of human resource because all of those people that could be contributors now mm-hmm. feel like they aren't participants in the society. Right. Not only not participants, but don't even have any agency within societal structures. I wanted to talk a little bit about 
people or events in your life that you felt were positive influences? Of course, my mother, but I also think about my paternal grandmother who, when we moved into our own home, lived a block away. She was such a calming influence, such a kind and generous person, a great cook. Uh, (laughs) I was always at my grandparents' house at least a few days a week after school when I got to be in junior high and could go over there myself. I loved the quiet because with uh, six of us kids and (laughs) always a couple of us going at it for one reason or another, being angry or wanting to watch something different on TV, I would go over there. And I guess it wasn't cool for my older brothers to go hang out with the grandparents. So they often weren't there. I would have my grandmother and grandfather to myself a lot of times. They were uh, amazing and definitely really shining gem in my memory. It's funny how as an adult, you learn some things that were going on behind the scenes. Sure. (laughs) But as a child, it was just really incredible to have them there so close and to have their place be sort of a sanctuary. Junior high school was pretty difficult. I was dealing at the time with finally addressing some hearing issues that have been going on off and on, which explains some a lot of misunderstandings and thinking that I was completely stupid and not catching some things socially as well. I don't know if there was more than the hearing or not, but it was definitely a, a, a struggle interacting with other kids. And my grandparents' place was definitely a haven. And so you were really in addition in addition it. to being a a black child going to school in a racist context you were also dealing with disability um i i i believe yeah i believe i was <laughs> i mean i i have always been hesitant to call it that it's that idea of oh well someone else has it worse you know you don't want to claim it but I, I I believe it was. It challenged my schooling. It affected me socially. So I believe it would be fair enough to call it that. And so yeah. the, the, your grandparents were a calming influence, you say. Definitely. Did you have any other support that you felt like uh, either teachers or it doesn't necessarily have to be family, people that encouraged you? In junior high school, because of some of the social challenges, I was sent to the school counselor. And he was very kind and generous, and he was definitely a great influence as well. Unlike what I was perceiving that I would become when I grew up and sort of had not much control over, he was very insistent on my own agency and made sure that even if I didn't always follow it, that I made sure that I knew that I could take other paths that just because certain factors existed, it didn't dictate my trajectory or didn't have to. That's such an important point. The idea of opportunities being presented. So I can have lots of opportunities available to me, but if I don't know that they're available to me, if someone hasn't pointed it out, then any sorts of prejudices in my own mind that would block those and create a situation where I don't see them 
will stop me from progressing or taking advantage of them. So it, it's, I think we've all been in a situation mm-hmm. where somebody comes to us and says, well, why aren't you doing it this way? Or have you considered this? And you think, you know what? I, I hadn't considered it. Exactly. So that idea of someone just pointing out to you that there is an alternative mm-hmm. or there is an opportunity is extremely important. That was one of the things I covered in the series on indoctrination was methods of keeping people from seeing alternatives, from seeing opportunities, doing what you can to build walls around their ability to see those things. And you can do that to people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in, in a society where we have systemic situations and prejudices where a lot of the folks in power have these sorts of prejudices and don't believe that mm-hmm. there, there are particular groups capable of achieving, they yes. are going to be messaged over and over again that you can't do this, that this isn't an opportunity. And not everyone is going to have that fortitude that Michelle Obama had and exactly. say, I can do this. Some kids are going to say, well, my counselor doesn't think thinks that this is too lofty, so maybe I should look at going to trade school. Maybe I should look at some other option that because this one might not be available to me exactly Um, so it is important for people to have those opportunities and i think to have someone in their life like you're describing she described her parents always telling her that she could and what you're saying is i had this counselor you know i had my mother first of all who who was an advocate for me but also a counselor independently who when i maybe felt like i couldn't do a thing said to me yes you you can you can do this this is available to you you should consider this option yeah yeah i did listen to your piece about indoctrination and one thing that i thought about as well is not just steering away from information but also tainting that information. Obviously, it's very clear with religious indoctrination, but putting a mark on other options as either impossible or negative or blasphemous. Consider someone who is in Jehovah's Witnesses. They are not encouraged to go to college. They might even know, oh, well, there may be, you know, scholarships for people who don't have enough money or who don't have the support to go to college, but I probably wouldn't qualify. And they might, but it's been, the information has been so twisted because of the patterns that are ingrained in their thinking that there are times when options exist. We know they exist, but we don't think we can take them. It's just fascinating. Yeah. And it is that simple uh, as, you know, either, either hiding opportunities from people so that they don't see them or leading them to believe that that opportunity is is too lofty a, a goal for them. So what about negative influence? Um, we're talking a little bit about who was encouraging to you, but where did you see messages where, that you felt were more like tearing you down? No, I um, I am struggling to think of one because I often was so focused on some of my own challenges enough that I pulled back. You know, no one had to tell me, oh, you can't do that. I just didn't think there were other options a lot of times until I ran into people like my guidance counselor. So where do you think that came from, though? I mean, you have a you have a mother that you describe as like a, a pretty fair advocate. Yes. And yet somehow you still were struggling with the idea of personal empowerment and achievement. And unfortunately, I still do. I don't know if it's uh, the way my 
brain is wired, but I'm learning to sort of put it to the side and make efforts anyway. But yeah, I'm not really certain. I think it comes from an idea of making myself safe, to be sure. I remember a clear distinction between fifth grade and sixth grade and how I interacted socially. I know that uh, between those two times, I developed earlier than a lot of other female-bodied kids. I, I don't know if that had to do with my shrinking back or not, but in fifth grade, I had sort of buds. And in sixth grade, which in the Midwest or in a lot of Midwest schools, that's the beginning of junior high school. I know some start at seventh or but in the Midwest, it's sixth to eighth grade, and then ninth grade is considered part of high school. At any rate, I went from buds to a C cup when I came back in uh, sixth grade. There were looks, <laughs> which I wasn't used to, and right. so I started wearing uh, baggier clothes. I definitely pulled back socially, but I don't know if it was consciously just because of the changes in my body. It probably was that on top of other things as well you know, finally addressing the hearing, getting glasses. I don't know. <laughs> well, when you did address the hearing issue, um, was there ever a moment where you thought, oh, this is why, this is, this is why that time I had yeah. that issue? Yes, <laughs> I definitely did have moments like that after it okay. was addressed. Yeah. So it's possible that that what we're talking about here could be a result of, of maybe self-consciousness with regard to the disability and blaming yourself and believing that you were maybe underachieving when in reality you were struggling uh, with a real disability. Yeah, absolutely. That's a possibility. Okay. Do you remember uh, any specific events or incidents that stand out to you as formative that, that made you stop and say, hey, this this changes the way I think or the, the way I view, and this makes me, this changes my trajectory. I do. I was, again, I was born in 1970. So when I was 10 in the fifth grade, it was when Reagan was coming into office. And in fifth grade, I had <laughs> such clear black and white thinking that I would talk about things with my mom. Yes, as a 10-year-old, she figured that we were old enough to talk about some things that we saw on the news. And I watched the news with her now and then. And I was actually pro-Reagan at that time. I was like, well, people should be able to work and <laughs> get okay. themselves out of things as a 10-year-old. So you were like the budding young Republican <laughs> Black girl from Chicago. I, I was. I was. And then yeah, almost that next year when everything was going on, I was considering some of the things that my mother was telling me, like there are circumstances that are systemic with some people and that their paths have more difficult challenges in them for some people than others. And yeah, in sixth grade. <laughs> Your mother then was uh, ironically pointing out that even among a marginalized group, you had some privilege. Yeah. And that you needed to consider others who had less. Well, even then, since I was 10, I didn't even fully uh, grasp the magnitude of the racial issue. You know, I was going to a school that was predominantly white. I was set to go as long as I stayed in the neighborhood to a high school that had at one point been voted the number one high school in the country, Evanston Township High School at one point was number one. 
I guess there was difficulty there, like considering other situations because, you know, oh, the school is right there. If I go to the school, then I can <laughs> do better. And it was definitely an eye opener, though, to have all these extra channel challenges on top of just regular adolescence and dealing with puberty when I went into sixth grade. So that made me consider other people's stories instead of just assuming, oh, well, <laughs> you know, they could do better if they wanted to. Sure. So you, you, like you say, you were, you were learning to hear other people and, and consider their context and how that could be different from yours and how that might affect a person. much school age but then you move into adulthood and you get out of school you, you get out of high school and, wh- and what what happens then some of the patterns carried through from childhood there were times when I pulled back so tightly and didn't reach out to anybody I, I when I go back to visit I live in a different state now when I go back to visit there were always people who remembered me and I recognized their faces, but couldn't remember their names. You know, my family is known in that neighborhood, but I personally sort of stepped back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So when you left home, though, were you were you going to college? Were you going straight to work? What happened? There was a little bit of back and forth. I stayed at my mom's house and went to junior college for a little while, community college for a year, year and a half. And then I just worked. And then I went away to school for the first time, three hours away at Western Illinois University and stayed there for almost two years. And that definitely highlighted my need to reach out more or get more involved or take control of my own agency. I was always sort of back and forth, sometimes bold moves and then going back to my shell. And that was one of the bold moves is moving away. I was 19, I think, and came back at 21. And I still hadn't finished. I stopped, I stopped school for a while and then started working. And then I went back to school again at an art school and finally finished at 27 and got my degree in creative writing. And what about what about your social circle? I mean, you're moving away from home, and I understand that you're saying that you're a little bit uh, introverted, which I am as well. But you surely did make new connections. Um, either were you were you dating? Were you interacting in any sort of social groups or clubs? Who who were your peers at this point? When I went away to school, there was a guy in the dorm building near mine who definitely was a kind person and befriended me. (laughs) He even ended up braiding my hair. (laughs) It was nice. He was just, we didn't date. He was just very nice. Just a good um, friend. Yeah. And unfortunately, I lost 
track of him. But he was a nice connection in a place where there were even less black people than in the suburb. So he was a nice connection there as a uh, black man, an adult black man to connect with. And and what was that experience like? What was the experience of moving away from a predominantly black neighborhood to a predominantly white institution? I almost feel at times and definitely felt stronger this way then as like a camera. I just watched things. I was an observer. I, I don't even know if it's any sort of shyness. I can't get self-conscious when people are, you know, when attention is on. But I think your word, uh, uh, introversion is more what it is, I think. And there are connections that I make with people. But back then, it was just sort of me watching people. I didn't even make a whole lot of connections. I was sort of on the outskirts of those that I did make. Um, There was someone in one of my art classes. I started with art before uh, I left that school and ended up going to another art school and then changing to creative writing instead. (laughs) But yeah, it was sort of like an anthropological project. I was sort of separate from it. Okay. And and so as you learned more about the world around you and people around you, that's when your ideas began to evolve and you started leaving behind the the Ronald Reagan era. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And you got more into art. You went to college, you went off to school. You were still somewhat introverted. So me and you meet, we're on Facebook, we're friends. We've had a few interactions. And one day I go to your wall. I can't even remember what I was doing there, but I see a post. And in that post, you were saying, hey, I've entered candidate school with the Oregon Labor Candidate School. And... We're doing a project where part of it is about, you know, addressing my fundraising skills because that is part of candidacy. And so they've asked us to do what we can to raise donations for this effort because this is this is what I'm involved in and this is what I'm working on. And you're, you all are welcome to help. And yeah. I was pretty impressed by that. So I saw that and I was just <laughs> like, wow, okay, so you want to run for office. I am considering a run for city council here in Kaiser, Oregon, and attending candidate school, the Oregon Labor Candidate School, is part of solidifying that, finding out the groundwork that needs to be done, what sort of strengths or weaknesses I'll uh, need to work on and improve before any sort of campaign begins. It's going to be a little while, but yeah, I figured why not, since the opportunity is there, go to the candidate school and find out firsthand from some people who have run what it means to run and why I want to run and dig in and try and figure things out. So I'm still in the process of that and I'm loving it so far. It's really fascinating. All of the different sections that we have to study as far as fundraising, as far as groundwork and field work. And it's changing my ideas about politicians in some ways, in some ways. <laughs> the things that have changed are that it's a lot of work. You kind of have to believe in getting to where you're going. Now, this can be positive or negative. You have to believe to getting to, to that end goal, or else there is a lot of sound and fury for nothing if you don't. You have to consider your family. You have to consider 
well, at this point now, everybody has to consider their uh, internet histories, you know, where, where they've interacted with different things and make sure you aren't caught by surprise about it. You have to consider, especially now, the fact that it is not just you. Your friends may be contacted about things. Family may be contacted about things just just for running, not even holding the position. Um, and the candidate school is addressing how to deal with those. We talk with uh, actual campaign managers. We talk with people who have run for office and not won. We talk with people who have gotten the positions that they ran for. So it has been an education in the best way. Okay, so you went ahead and entered the candidate school, and I'm sure you didn't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to candidate school. So how, yeah. how did that happen? I was beginning to get a disconnected feeling that I get a lot of times. So I've moved around a bit, different states, and eventually I get sort of a feeling like I'm not plugged in here. I'm you know, I don't need to be here. It doesn't matter if I leave. So what other place might I like to be? And I was starting to get that feeling, but I'm 50. (laughs) So I wanted to make an effort to plug in and see if that would help me feel more grounded. If this would help me make this place feel more at home. I started going to city council meetings and it turns out there is only one person of color on the city council and he was feeling overwhelmed. I got in contact with other progressive people in the city and I had been working with them as well for different projects to move the city in a more progressive direction. They are coming up with a statement of values and while it's <laughs> You know, some of it is just lip service, but it is nice to actually have some things addressed. It is nice to have more people showing up for our one city council member. I was helping spread the word about that. And I thought, well, I could run for city council. (laughs) What do they do? What happens? (laughs) And I was asking people in my local DSA, that's Democratic Socialists of America. They have a chapter here, near here in Salem, Oregon. And a couple of members there mentioned the candidate school because it's associated with our union, with all sorts of unions, actually. And my particular union had to be, happens to be a part of it, and that they cover the costs and that what pays for the candidate school is the project of fundraising while you're in the school to give you experience on how to create lists, how to put things up on social media, create databases, and make sure phone numbers are up to date, emails are up to date. Um, So I'm on your donation list now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on a list. list, But But I'm not going to call you, don't worry. (laughs) No problem. You can, you can call me. (laughs) it's just to have the list and to go through the process of creating it but maybe i will tracy (laughs) there you go so when when somebody hears about this so someone hears candidate school and they're 
past Latanya. They're past. They're your past self, and they're thinking, "Oh, that's that's too lofty for me. I'm not going to run for how would you know? I, I could never run for office. I mean, isn't that kind of the point of the school is to to equip people to be able to run for office? Yes, yes, that is exactly uh, one of the points of the school, and to make sure that the people that are running are labor-based and worker-focused is very important. We actually do have a uh, Republican or two in the class. However, they are very intentional about (laughs) what type of Republican they are, and gratefully, (laughs) and they are not interested in seeming like cult members to put it frankly. (laughs) So it's about being people-based and worker-based, obviously, since it's uh, the unions that help fund it. And I think that's what made me decide that I could do it, is that, oh, it's just people. (laughs) Politicians are not separate. They're, They're us. You know, as much as we want to differentiate ourselves from those who are in the upper levels, it's still just people making decisions. And workers and everyone should have a say in what we do as a group, whether it's your city, your state, or your country. That's what other folks can expect when they're going to candidate school or if they're considering candidate school. And what I would also like to know is you are obviously thinking of running for office for a reason, right? This isn't just a hobby with you. So when you look at the society and you say, here's the impact I would like to have, what are your goals? What do you want to learn and what do you want to implement in the society that you think you don't see right now? Specifically for this city, I would like to learn how to affect the trajectory of policy. Right now, we have got a lot of big box stores and restaurants wanting and waving money to create places here. Um, of course, it's under the under the stated goal of providing jobs for those who live here and growing the city. But I do know there is an element in the population here that does not want to grow too fast. And I am one of those people. I want to learn how to make certain that we are able to provide as much as we are able to grow for those that live here. Initially, I was sort of uh, cynical about even the idea of politics. So I get it. I get those people who are who watch the news and then turn it off thinking, well, that's horrible, but I can't do anything about it. <laughs> you know, I, I definitely understand that. And I believe going to candidate school is my own fight against that sort of hopeless feeling, helpless feeling. Those at higher levels, what I've extrapolated myself, you know, I can't read their minds, but it does not seem to even be about money. It seems like people are willing to slash and burn and even destroy companies for power and for knowing that they are established and that people have to go through them. And I am making an effort. People might think, well, how are you going to be different? I want to listen and I want to guide things to make certain that people who live here have a say and that they are also part of things, mutual aid, but more codified. (laughs) 
So you talk about the idea of, of concerns about, I guess, unbridled growth or growth that's too fast, that you want to have time to city plan while growth is ongoing. Right. And what do you think are the dangers of insufficient planning with unchecked growth? Uh, Physically, it probably looks like lots of traffic issues. It looks like uh, scarcity in housing. It looks like possibly even uh, city spread that may leave people distant from food sources. I think that it happens a lot. And sometimes it can cause a town that has been moving along to expand very fast and then sort of uh, supernova, you know, explode and then contract and people kind of don't want to go there anymore. Oh, why should I go there? The traffic, the there's no place to park. There's no place to live. I'm looking to see if there's a way to avoid that. That's actually the end of our list of topics. Do you have anything else that you would like to discuss or to promote? I know that they are taking donations to the Candidate School, and I just want to let folks who are listening know that I will be including a link to the Candidate School, as well as a couple of interesting links about your mother. Yeah, Your mom wasn't just an a mother who was active, she was an activist. Yes, yes. She passed away this past August. And yes, she was definitely an activist. And she was well known at her uh, city council meetings. She never ran herself, even though I'm baffled why she didn't. She's got a strong voice. There are videos of her making certain that she gets her point across before leaving the podium. And um, it's just great. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add that you feel that we didn't cover that we should or any final thoughts? Definitely to those who are like me feeling not shy, but sort of pulled back from things or sort of feeling powerless or disenfranchised. It definitely, whether I even decide to run or not, but I'm leaning towards running it's important to find out about the structures and feel like it's yours as well. There are still, it's not a fairy tale. There are still things that prevent certain functionings, but it's there and no one can tell you not to reach for it. No one. And I appreciate the opportunity, Tracy. Oh yeah, no, no problem. I'm so glad that you agreed to come on. I also would like to give you an opportunity to address the idea of, Okay, so they everyone hears you talk and they hear this podcast and there's going to be probably a lot more people who decide running for office is not for me still mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than people who say, hey, I might check this out and I might be interested in running for office. So for those who are saying, you know, I'm not really somebody who wants to run for office, they can still be engaged. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It is definitely helpful to know how things work, whether you are going to be part of that structure or not, no matter at what level. It's, I, I do think it's very important. And if anyone does choose to uh, help out as far as my specific Oregon Labor Candidate School, please do send an email and uh, let Tracy or myself know. I'll make certain that she puts the contact information in that, that you sent it and the amount so that I can make certain my instructor puts down so I get credit for it. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think that's great. I'll I'll uh, go ahead and include some sort of a process, I guess, in the description. We can sort that out. What would be the best way yeah. to do it uh, to to make sure that you do get that credit? Thank you. Yeah, it's not as complicated as it sounds. But um, <laughs> the only thing that makes make it, an effort. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I suppose we could set up like a a sideline email or something where people could reach out. <laughs> but I will go ahead then and thank you again for coming on and talking to me about this and talking to some other folks about it, like just, you know, having the audience hear this, I think is a good thing. And I appreciate your willingness to be active in the political process and to represent and to share your voice and just thank you in general. Oh, thank you, Tracy. I really appreciate it. Okay. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.